Grab a Bible. We are in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. You'll see the passage there written for you. We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a snapshot of what we are like as citizens in the kingdom. It is a way for Jesus to show us around the corner. It's a way for Jesus to show us what our lives are going to be like, what they should be like, not in the future, but now in light of what he has done for us that he has gone the distance for us, that he has accomplished for us everything that he asks of us in this passage because the Sermon on the Mount is about what he is calling us to be as beloved children of God. So would you give your attention to Emily as she reads from us from Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you now take your holy word and by it would you change our hearts? A very timely passage for us. In a world where we see such demonstrations of evil, we need to know how to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right off the bat, when I hear this passage read, I don't know about you, but it makes me ask an immediate question. It's an objection. It's in verse 48. Do you see it there? It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody perfect here? Me either. But it very clearly says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, there are people who claim the name of Christ who say, well, look, it's right in the Bible. Be perfect. In fact, you know what? Someone might say, I am. I met somebody on a plane several months ago who was traveling. They were from Tulsa, and they said, I haven't sinned since 1979. I said, well, you're in luck because I'm a mess, and I'm right next to you, so I'll see if I can try to get you before we get to the... Just kidding. <laughs> there are people who legitimately believe that they are perfect, that there are two moral categories of people, those who have prevailing grace and those who have what are called prevenient graces, that not only do you become a Christian, but you can become a super Christian without sin. This passage, this verse, takes you back to chapter uh, 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, again, something very, very similar. He says, For I tell you, unless the right, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. So, question. What does verse 48 mean? 
I mean, surely Jesus isn't calling us to be perfect. That bug any of you? Listen, the Greek word for perfect is the word teleos. It's the word for complete or whole. It's the word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, and he uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul uses it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 15, for mature is the way that translators will often communicate it. Complete, a person of integrity, a person that is whole in and of themselves. This is not telling you that you must, on this side of glory, be absolutely sinless. It is telling you that Jesus is calling you to be who you are as a beloved child of the King. And while the Father looks at you, if you are in Jesus, and he sees you despite your awareness and your growing self-awareness of all your sins, Jesus, if you trust in him, Jesus covers you with his righteousness. So when the Father looks at you, he sees you as completely spotless and blameless. And this word, this word teleos, is what we will be at the end. But Jesus is pulling the end into the present, the future into the now, saying, friends, I am calling you to live like this as citizens of my kingdom. While you will never be perfect on this side of glory, I am giving you my Holy Spirit to allow you to live completely countercultural lives. And he requires that of us in this passage because it's a hard passage. Turn the other cheek when someone slaps you in the face. What does that mean? When I read this passage, verse 48 jumps out to me like a light bulb in a dark room. And it also makes me ask questions in light of Friday night in Paris. Turn the other cheek, right? Okay. What about Paris? Let's just talk. What do you do with that? There are other Christians. Some say you have to be perfect. That's not what this text teaches. For indeed we can't be. There are other Christians who say, see this passage teaches pacifism. That you must never strike back at someone. Well, how do you answer that? It says, doesn't it? Doesn't it? In my Bible it says, do not resist the one who is evil. Friends, this is a very important point. I want you to hear me. Jesus here is talking to private citizens. He's talking to his disciples. Jesus here is talking to individuals who are mistreated on a personal interrelational level. He is not talking to institutions and governments over men. How do we know that? Because Romans chapter 13 is very clear that God sets up kings and he deposes them and he gives to the state the right of coercion or force for the protection of the citizenry, of the citizens in that country. And so this text is not saying, well, we should just let 129 people die. We should not strike back whenever we are attacked as a nation. He is saying at an interpersonal level, he's laying down a principle for you and for me, and here's the principle. When you are mistreated, Christian, when you are mistreated, you are to respond you are to confront. You are, as we'll say today, to surprise with poise and to confront with love. That is how you and I on an interpersonal level are to respond when we are dishonored, when we are mistreated. That's the principle. 
How are we to react when we are mistreated? Answer, you surprise with poise and you respond with love. So let's look at those two points as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning. Surprise with poise, confront with love. Again, this is talking about an interpersonal level, right? This is not talking about governments. This is not talking about institutional evil. Are you all with me on that? It can't be because sin is so great and bloodshed would cover the earth if this did not allow for governments to institute coercion by the sword and clearly scripture does. So let's think about this together. When we are mistreated, we are to surprise with poise and to confront with love. Jesus here lays down the principle, in Latin it's called lex talionis. It's the principle of the eye and the tooth. It was a well-known principle, not only in ancient Israel, but even in the 18th century BC, the Code of Hammurabi laid down this principle. It even uses the same illustration of an eye and of a tooth. Saying, listen, Moses instituted this command because in ancient Israel, whenever you offended someone, blood was shed. And Moses said, just like we learned last week, with the reason why there are rules for divorce in the midst of a very chaotic world where people were being divorced left and right, women left out on the street, Moses steps in and says, friends, we are reigning in the retaliation in this culture. And you are to retaliate only in kind. Somebody knocks out your tooth, you do not take their life. Someone plucks out your eye, friends, you do not kill them. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus comes in here and he expands that restraint to much more than just equitive retribution. Jesus says here, he says, listen, I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. To slap someone on the cheek was the worst, it was a metaphor for the worst way you could possibly dishonor someone. It, most people were right-handed. They would slap you in the cheek with an open hand. It was a horrible insult in that culture. But physical violence is not exclusively, exclusively what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about your honor being defamed. He's talking about when your rights are taken from you at an individual level, when you are mistreated. Jesus is saying in that context, you are to turn the other cheek. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say you are to offer them the other cheek. Jesus is not saying that you are to just lay down and not defend yourself if you're physically being abused. He says you're to turn the other cheek. That is, you're to do something utterly amazing. Because the human tendency, whenever we are confronted with insults, maybe even with personal injury, as you would if you physically were slapped in the face, is one of two things. Either you fight, some of you are fighters, and others of you are flighters. You fight or you flight. And Jesus steps in here and he says, the human tendencies are for you to fight or flight. But I'm offering you a third way, a gospel way. And that is that I want you to stand there and surprise them with your poise. 
Most of us will say, don't just stand there, do something. And in the eyes of, or the words of the Frenchman Simone Weil, he says, don't just do something, stand there. And that's very much what Jesus is saying in this passage. Think about, friends, when you, in a recent uh, week, were insulted or you were offended in some way. And your natural reaction is to get back at them and retaliate. Your Savior calls you to surprise them by your poise. And being able to have control over your emotions in that situation is an amazing reflection of your Savior, isn't it? How can you respond with such poise? How does Jesus expect his disciples to do that? He expects them to do that because of the power that comes in what he ultimately did for his disciples and what he has done for us. Many of you know that toward the end of Matthew, Matthew describes the agony of the crucifixion. And Jesus is spat upon, as we read, Lance read in Isaiah chapter 50. Jesus is mocked. Jesus is, he receives a crown of thorns. thorns. And all through that, what does he do? Even while he's at court, he doesn't say a word, even though he could call down myriads of angels and wipe the Romans out just like that. He surprises the world with his poise. Do you? Can you? Jesus says, Isaiah says, and thinking of Jesus through Isaiah, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. Hmm? 800 years before Jesus was crucified, there is Isaiah writing a picture of the coming Messiah who responded with poise in the face of your insults toward him and mine by our sin. Surprised us with poise. Was Jesus angry? Of course. And in his anger, you would have expected him to retaliate. And he chooses not to. He surprises the world with his poise. Miroslav Volf is um, a philosopher, and on the front of your bulletin, you'll see that there's a quote by him that says, the cross of Jesus breaks the, ex the cycle of violence. Hanging on the cross, Jesus provided the ultimate example of his command to replace the, the principle of retaliation with the principle of turning the other cheek. Jesus's kind of option of nonviolence has nothing to do with the self-aggravation in which I completely place myself at the disposal of others to do with me as they please. It has much to do with the kind of self-assertion in which I refuse to be ensnared in the dumb redoubling of my enemies' violent gestures and be reshaped into their mirror image. No, the crucified Messiah is not a concealed legitimization of the system of terror but of its radical critique. Friends, the cross of Jesus, 
turns back our retaliation and it places it rightfully where it should be in the hands of a loving and graceful God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter one, it speaks of the day when God will come and he will judge the earth. It speaks of the day, one day, someday, when he returns, that Jesus will bring vindication upon all those who have done us wrong. And while we have done wrong, all of the wrath that we rightly deserve is placed on Jesus. And he takes the blow in our stead. But for those of us who are mistreated, those of us who have been sexually abused, those of us who have been severely mistreated by other people, I want you to hear me. Jesus promises vindication for you. Those of you who have experienced the horrors of rape, those of you who have experienced the horrors of being let go from a job in an unjust manner, Jesus promises vindication for you. And it is that truth with which Christians throughout the ages in history have been able to stand in the face of persecution for the glory of their Savior and not retaliate when they could have rightly done so. Do you believe that? This morning, are you able to take that hatred and that anger and that fierce sense of justice and are you able to confess that to the Lord and to let him carry out his vengeance on you? Now, I am not saying that there aren't appropriate times for you to involve the state. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying to you that there is a proper reaction for us to have and that is to surprise them with our poise in the face of utter contempt. Many times people read this passage and they will say, well, Jesus is a great example of poise, isn't he? I mean, look at the end of Matthew and these places in the Bible where Jesus suffers unjustly. And Christians are to be people who just follow his example. Is that true? Should we follow Jesus' example? Of course. Is that primary or is that secondary in the Christian gospel? It is secondary, not primary. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. Um, it's a time of season for us to plant bulbs. Tulip bulbs, man, not light bulbs. Tulip bulbs. It's a time of season for us to plant them. Nobody goes around taking petals and putting them in the ground and praying and hoping that they will spring up. We plant bulbs. Many times in, Christ, in the Christian life, Many Christians are tempted to say, well, here's a good example, so let me take this example and I will feed off of the energy of that example. That will last you about five minutes. Instead, you are not to plant the example in the soil of your heart, so to speak. You are to plant the bulb. And what the bulb is, is that Jesus Christ is the one who died for you and took away your sins on the cross and gives you his righteousness. That is the good news. That is the power from which life springs. If you plant petals, it will just rot. If you merely take the Bible and you just try to emulate all the good examples in it, you will be exhausted. It will, so to speak, rot and you'll be left with nothing. But if you learn to plant the bulb of the good news of Jesus' righteousness for sinners week after week, again and again and again, 
life will begin to spring. And just like tulips and daffodils, they begin to multiply and they begin to spring. And there are more petals and it's even more beautiful. This is what Peter meant when Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example. The flowers petal. Those are the petals that you might follow in his steps. Here's the bulb, because he committed no sin. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter takes the same principle and he says, listen, Jesus is your example, yes, but you must first, if you're gonna have life in you, you must look to what he did on the cross. And out of the work of the cross, then the petals began to bloom. And our responsibility is what he says in verse 25. For you were strained like sheep, but have returned now to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus is not only your example, but he is your righteousness. And friends, when you believe that, you're able in the midst of being mistreated to confront with poise, to surprise with poise. But you're not only to surprise with poise, Jesus goes on, he says, you're to confront them with love. He gives you four illustrations here of confrontation. Lower your eyes to the text and look at it with me. He says, listen, if anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus is saying this is an injury to your honor. Slapping someone on the face was a way of dishonoring them. It wasn't like they were fighting. It was a way of dishonoring them. Then he goes on and says, listen, if someone asks for your coat, give them your tunic as well. Speaks of unfair or even legal mistreatment. He goes on and he says, when you're exploited, when somebody takes advantage of you, don't go one mile, go two. And then, general, and then he gives a kind of general catch-all. He says, listen, if you're being taken advantage of, financially or otherwise, give. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus here gives four examples of mistreatment. When Jesus says, I want you to not only let them take your tunic, but give them your cloak as well, Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to give them not the cheap thing, but I want you to give them what was expensive. The coat was what was most expensive. Give them your coat. Surprise them by your poise. Confront them with your love. Jesus is speaking here about the Romans. Um, uh, they would... Uh, commandeer people as a porter to carry out their business. They would say, I want you to walk a mile on 
for sake of the state. The mile here is just a thousand paces. That's what it literally means. And Jesus says, no, when somebody wants you to walk a mile, when you're being exploited, you go walk two miles with them. You surprise them by your poise and you confront them in your love. And Jesus says, when somebody comes to you and they take advantage of you financially, give to them. Now, we can't do that ad infinitum. We can't do that every time because we would be a community of paupers and of peasants if we gave everything away. But the principle is true. Surprise them by your poise. Confront them in your love. Do we do that? Jesus goes on to say, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Friends, Jesus has given you and me so much, even his very life. And as you place yourself in the context of the good news of Jesus dying for you as a sinner and giving you his righteousness, it radically transforms the way you treat other people so that you're able to turn the other cheek and not fight for your rights when you're abused. You're able to love your enemies and you're even able to pray for them. The Bible doesn't say to hate anybody. Jesus is saying, listen, you Jews have taught that you should hate people. Not, I've never said that. I tell you the truth, you should pray for those who persecute you. You should love your enemies. Are you able to do that? Have you ever been to the, grand, uh, the dam at Grand Lake? Have you ever seen that big dam that dams up the lake from the Neosho River. Listen, a lot of us, a lot of us when we read passages like this, right, we have flight or f- fight or flight tendencies. And we are so concerned with our pride being hurt when people offend us that it's like we've got our finger in the dike. We've got our finger stuck in the dam. We are so afraid to let out a little water. And that dam at Grand River lets out thousands of gallons into the Neosho River. When you drive by it, it's just this amazing rush of water. That is a picture of what it's like when people mistreat you. You are losing your pride by the thousands of gallons. And it hurts. It hurts. But you know what is also true of you, Christian? Don't be worried about the level of Grand Lake because you know why? It is fed from springs in the Rocky Mountains that then feed the Arkansas River that then come into the three rivers that form Grand Lake. So many of us are so concerned that we are eking out our pride, that we're losing our dignity. No, you're not. Your Savior in heaven loves you more than you could ever imagine, and he constantly fills you up. It's far better, far better to have control of your spirit, Solomon says, than to conquer a city. Friends, your power is demonstrated in the context of suffering by you looking to Jesus who was the example, the perfect example of suffering and who covers you in his righteousness and he fills you up to the brim. So your pride is hurt. You get made fun of. You get mistreated. It hurts. But you have a savior who is constantly pouring into you and the level of your dignity, the level of your pride, the level of his assurance over you always remains steady and always remains constant. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. 
Can you turn the other cheek? Yes. Can you surprise with poise and can you confront them with love? Yes, in light of what Jesus has done for us because he is perfect and he has given us his perfect righteousness. Are you able to rest in that? Are you able to pray for repentance for your white hot retaliation against those who've offended you? I hope so. That's the community to which God has called us as one people, as one body, as Jesus's cruciform cross-shaped community in Owasso in Northeast Oklahoma. So let's help each other fight for that. To surprise with poise and to confront with love and thereby be a beautiful picture to the world of our suffering Savior. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us to live out this very, very difficult passage in turning our other cheek. And Lord, I pray you will help us to be able to surprise with poise and confront with love when our honor is abused, when we are made fun of, when we are mistreated. Father, I pray for those of us who have been mistreated in very real ways that we will look to your final judgment for vindication because we are not the proper administers of it. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to trust in the gospel in these situations, that you are good, and that you cover us with your love. You shower us with your affirmation. And Father, I pray that you will help those who um, have been mistreated in ways that um, uh, may um, require more processing, more counseling, that you would help us to have the courage to come and talk to the elders of the church about how to properly respond. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your protection of your people. Thank you, Lord Christ, for your body and blood, which we will soon enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen.